Hey, good morning. How's everybody doing? Cool, cool, cool. Hey, my name's Ty. I'm one of the fastest here. I don't know if you, I, I've been gone for a while. I've been on sabbatical, and so um, it's great to be back. Uh, let me, get, let me uh, catch you up on what's been going on the past three months, but let me hear from you first. So what's been going on the past three months with you guys? Just kidding. Just kidding. Hey, I've missed you guys. Like, I really did, but I'm just so grateful for the leadership here, allowing me some time off to rest and come back uh, recharged and restored. I'm grateful also for uh, the men who carried this pulpit along the way, uh, Pastor Tim, Matt, Andrew, Brandon. I hope I covered everyone. Thank you guys so much for just uh, handling God's word and uh, faithfully feeding the, the, the flock. So I really appreciate that. But it's good to be back with you guys. I'm super excited about today. I haven't preached in almost four months, and so it may be a little rusty today. It's like when a, a kid gets their driver's license, they may hit a few mailboxes. We'll probably hit a few today. Let's see how it goes. But hey, before I get started, I got a couple announcements for you. Number one, we are having a Covenant Partner class on September 18th, 2 p.m. right in here. You're like, what's Covenant Partner mean? That means membership. And so if you want to become a member of Grace Point Church, in which we want you to become a member of, come to this class. It's about three hours long, but usually we keep it shorter than that. You get to learn the inside, outside of Grace Point Church, what we believe, what we do not believe, how we lead, and all those types of different things. So make sure you show up for that. And then you can sign up to Grace Point Vegas for that. And then go, the second one is this. We have a marriage conference on October 1st. And so if you're engaged or you're married, you've been married for a little while, you've been married for a long time, your marriage is amazing, your marriage is not so amazing or something in between, this is for you. Uh, We are limiting this to 50 couples. So hurry up and get on this. We have free childcare. If I didn't get you with that, free childcare, am I right? We're going to watch your kids all day long. No amens. Cool. All right, moving on. Man, what happened while I was gone? <laughs> you, stopped, you stopped laughing. Just kidding. Anyway, make sure you sign up for that. And then lastly, um, many of you have been here for a while, and you're familiar with the Give Foundation, in which we as a church partner with and individuals as well. And so I'm going to welcome Carlos and Myra up. They are the founding and founders and leaders of the Give Foundation. You guys come on up. By the way, if you're not familiar with Give, uh, they're doing some amazing work in El Salvador, a nutrition plan that's actually feeding people. Uh, they're working on education, working on schools down there, curriculums. They're wanting to secure a house for youth ministry. They want to see people affected by the gospel, the gospel proclaimed, and the gospel dem- demonstrated as well. They want to see leaders produce leaders. And they want people to give back to the community there. They really want to change a culture down there. And uh, they've already started doing some great work. So if you're not familiar with them, you can check up uh, on the screen right now. We have a QR code. You can scan that. Uh, They're looking for more donors as well. And it's super simple to donate. Angie and I do this monthly. And then the church does it as a whole and a bunch of you as well. So make sure you're not missing out on this opportunity. But why do I have them up here right now? Well, they are moving on Wednesday to El Salvador. They put their money where their mouth is. They sold everything here. And they're leaving. And so what we want to do is we want to bring them up, let you guys know that. And then we want to pray for them on their way out. Uh, we're going to keep them in our prayers, and we're going to keep them somehow before you, either through video or have them come back every once in a while. And uh, we've been in talks about having uh, short-term mission trips go to El Salvador, so that'd be something you might want to uh, keep an eye out on the future. Am I missing anything? All right, cool. Love you guys. That's awesome. All right, hey, we're going to pray for them. If you don't mind, you feel comfortable with, we extend a hand outward as a sign of like, hey, we're praying for you. We want to bless you, and we want the Lord to be with you. And so if you would do that, do that, and I will pray for them. Father, thank you so much for Carlos and Myra and just knowing their story and uh, where, where they have been and where you've got them and where you are taking them. God, it's just, a, it's just a beautiful picture of your grace, your kindness, your mercy, and your activity. 
I pray for their safety as they get everything moved down there and they get settled in. I pray, God, that you would bless them in ways they had no idea. That Even as your word says, that you will do even more than they can think or ask. God, that we pray that you would do that. Keep them safe while they're there. I, I pray, God, that as they're looking for land to buy, as they're thinking about buying the vans for the transportation, all the different details... Uh, we know that you're a God in the details and you will take care of that. So I pray that you would line that for them. I pray, God, that you would keep the evil one away from them. He wants nothing more than to kill, steal, and destroy. And he'll go at any measure to do that. But I pray uh, by the name and the power of Jesus, you will keep him away. And I pray as they go and do this, it would be good for them. It would be good for us as a church. It would be good for that community down there. And disciples will be made. And disciples make disciples. And churches will be planted. And it would be all for the good of the kingdom, for the good of the people. And Jesus, to your glory alone, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you all. All right. I don't want to sound too hoity-toity, if you know what that means, or too, like, you know, high up or whatever. I'm the kind of guy that take a three-year-old used toilet back to Costco. But I do, I, it's a true story, I do enjoy a good Renaissance painting every once in a while. Uh, I do like paintings every once in a while, which sounds kind of like, you know, uppity or whatever, but I do. There's a guy by the name of James Audubon. He does a lot of birds. It's really neat. Uh, but one of my favorite medieval kind of Renaissance guys, and I might have that period off, I'm just using words I don't know, is a guy by the name of Rembrandt. And Rembrandt's got several pictures, and I want to show you a few of them, and I want to show you something really neat he does about it, because Rembrandt, Rembrandt can paint these beautiful pictures. Uh, they're odd-feeling at times, uh, and Rembrandt's also a sneaky fellow, and I like a little sneaky every once in a while. And so this is the uh, Rembrandt's rendition of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's in the Gospels. It's when the storm is happening, the disciples there, Jesus comes and calms the storm. You're probably familiar with that. When you look at this painting, you see Jesus there, kind of in the back right of the boat, and you see the 12 disciples, but there's another fellow that's a little out of character. He doesn't look like he belongs in the painting. You know who it is? It's Rembrandt. He would paint himself into the paintings often. Isn't that cool? Like I think, hey, one quick fun fact about this painting. Uh, it was hanging in a museum in Boston in 1990, and someone stole it. And guess what? No one has found it yet. It's like the greatest art uh, heist of all time. Super cool. So if you know where it's at, let them know. Second painting. <laughs> Second painting I really like is the raising of the cross, and it gives this, this uh, gruesome, brutally tragic and beautiful picture of Jesus uh, being crucified. And, you know, you look at the painting, you see Jesus on the cross, and you see the figures, but there's someone at the foot of the cross painted in that just kind of stands out. You know who that is? You guessed it. It is Rembrandt. And it's basically Rembrandt basically saying, this is, I'm in this. I'm a part of this. I did this. Now, the question we ask, because we think most of Rembrandt's painting, he painted himself in there. He really didn't sign a whole lot of them. We, we, we wonder, why did he do that? And I've heard others say the reason why he did that is because he wanted his expression of the, the, the medium of art to affect him in a deep, profound, and intimate way. He just didn't want to paint something, put it out there and said, I did this and I'm kind of aloof from it. He didn't want to take these stories of the Bible and say, hey, they're just stories and they're kind of removed from me. He wanted to insert himself into it. And I think that would be good for us as well. Today, we're starting a brand new series through the book of Esther. Now, some of you, you may be very familiar with the story of Esther. Some of you are like, I thought it was pronounced Easter. No, it's Esther. Like, you may not know anything. That's okay. We're going to walk through it together. But I'm going to propose that we be much like Rembrandt, and we insert ourselves into the story of God. Anytime we read the book of Esther or the Bible as a whole, we're first looking for the main character, the hero of the story. And the hero of the story of every story of the Bible is... 
Well done, well done. After that, I think it's important for us to try to insert ourselves into it well in an appropriate way. That way it becomes alive to us as well. And it's, it's deeply impacting and it, it informs us and transforms us as well. And so that's what we're going to do today and as we go through the book of Esther. So if you've got a Bible, open your Bible to the book of Esther. Uh, if you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we always say you're going to need a Bible because we lead, teach, and preach from the Bible. And so if you don't own one, you want a paperback one, we've got them in English and Spanish up here. You can grab them anytime. Out there in the lobby on the right, there's like a display with a bunch of fancy Bibles in it. You can order those. Don't take them. You can order those, though. Just, they're samples. Uh, but if you've got to have one, go ahead. It's on me. Uh, and then also, you've probably got a smartphone and the app Version. You can download Version, click Grace Point Church, and all the stuff will pop up. Got it? Esther. What are we going to do today? Well, today's kind of the setup week. We've got a lot of background to cover because I think it's important for us to understand what is going on with this book. First of all, we need to know where the book is at. Uh, you may know, you may not know that the Bible that you hold in your hands or you have on your phone is actually a, a mini library. It has 66 books in it. So it's like a collection of volumes uh, it has 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books. There's about 400 years in between uh, the last uh, story of the Old Testament and, the, and then the Gospel of Matthew. So there's a big gap in between. We call it the silent years. Uh, but anyway, Esther, if you were to open just your Old Testament, it kind of feels like it's in the middle. However, I don't know if you know it or not, that's not chronologically in order. Uh, actually, the Bible, as, as a lot of parts of the Old Testament, are not chronologically in order. So it really fits between Ezra and Nehemiah. So it is almost at the close of the Old Testament, which is very important. Now, some of you are wondering, well, why is the Bible not in chronological order? I don't know. <laughs> it's for you to figure out. No, I, it has to do with genres, it has to do with like, uh, there's a royal version of this, and there's like the grassroots level. But anyway, you can research that. It's tons of fun. But now, the question we have to ask is, okay, we know where to find it in the Bible, but where does Esther fit in the redemptive timeline? Because that's important when we want to understand a book of the Bible, a theme of the Bible, or just the Bible as a whole. We need to understand where, where does it fit in all that, because it's very, very helpful. So let me take us all the way back to the book of Genesis. You know the book of Genesis. You ever heard of it? Genesis means beginnings, and in the beginning, God spoke and created everything by speaking his word, and then uh, he created male and female. He created Adam and Eve, and he had this relationship with Adam and Eve, and it was a perfect relationship. They had a perfect relationship with God, with the world, and with one another, and everything was great. And then what did God do? He said, hey, there's one tree. Don't eat of that tree, right? And what'd they do? Just like you would him, all right? Well, there was a serpent that came up and tempted them, and they fell to the temptation. They ate it, and then sin infected Sin tainted the entire world and all of humanity following that outside of Jesus uh, is tainted by sin. And that causes death and causes separation. That's really, really bad. But yet God is so gracious, so kind, and so loving. He goes on this rescue mission. You can even pick up on this in Genesis chapter 3. He says, there is one who is going to come and crush the head of the snake. The snake head crusher, which would be a great wrestling name. But anyway, and his name is? Right. And so from that point forward, God is forming a people. He speaks to a guy by the name of Abram that later on becomes Abraham, and he forms his people together. And later on, he speaks to a guy by the name of Moses and gives them commands. And those commands are to help them know how to be human, because remember, they've been 400 years of slavery before that, and they were just treated as machines, know how to be human and know how humans are to relate with God. And then time and time and time and time again, what do they do? They fail miserably, just like we do, am I right? But what does God do? No matter how much they fail, his grace, his love, his kindness, his mercy, and his rescue mission will 
prevail. And so they, they had sinned a whole lot and kept like running away from God, running to other gods and all kinds of crazy stuff. And after a while, God's like, okay, fine. Uh, you're going into what's called holy timeout, which and it's called exiles. You're going to exile. Now, other countries are going to come and they're going to take you away and they're going to destroy the temple and destroy Jerusalem. And it's going to be a really dark, bad time. Now, this picks up right about there. We pick up in Esther about a hundred years after the Babylonian exile. So does that kind of put it on the redemptive timeline before the New Testament? Make sense? Eh? Cool, cool, cool. Now, the Jews uh, returned to Jerusalem, and we see this in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Some did not. Some were just scattered. And so the story of Esther is about a Jewish community, community living in the Persian Empire. Question, who wrote the book of Esther? Anyone know? We don't know. It's just there for speculation, so we have no idea who wrote it. Uh, how has the book of Esther been perceived through church history? Um, not favorably. First seven centuries of the church, you know what? They wrote zero, we believe, commentaries about the book of Esther. Martin Luther, you know the great reformer Martin Luther, the 95 thesis, the like, you know, that guy, Martin Luther? Uh, he hated the book. Couldn't stand it. He wished it wasn't in the Bible. So it hasn't really been looked on favorably. A lot of people don't preach a lot of series through the book of Esther. It seems like a futile endeavor, but we're going to do it. Meaning, like Esther can be a little bit of a tough book. Why? Because the book of Esther is tough for many reasons. One, I think, is because it's just telling a story. Now, I want you to hold on to this for the weeks to come. The book of Esther is not giving us moral values. It's not placing moral values on good and evil as we read through it. It's just telling the story. It's not saying, be like Esther or be like her cousin Mordecai. It is telling us a story. But I will say with that, the book of Esther is a gospel book. There is good news in the book of Esther. You know why? Because I'm going to hopefully show us that the book of Esther is pointing to Jesus. And so super excited about it. So there's a, there's a lot of preemptive work. Are you ready to jump into it now? We've got nine verses to cover. We'll get in, get out, and get you home to watch whatever you watch. Number one, verse one. Esther 1.1. 1, 1. Side note, <laughs> if you know me, I have a really hard time with Hebrew names and Greek names and English. There's a whole other story. <laughs> so this book is going to read like a Hebrew phone book as we go along, and it's just going it, to, it's really hard. But anyway, let's just go with it. I'll stop talking. Verse one. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, who is Ahasuerus? Ahasuerus goes by another name, a Greek name, because that's his Hebrew name. Does anyone know the Greek name of Ahasuerus? Artaxerxes, and there's a shortened version of it, Xerxes. Where do we know this name? Xerxes. Where do we know this name from? Hey, you remember Frank Miller's movie, 300? You know how all the ripped guys look like they did CrossFit and took a lot of vitamin S? You know so, yeah, that's, he's getting a little bit of play there, but um, his Hebrew name was Ahasuerus. And um, what I understand from historians, Ahasuerus, when a Hebrew person would hear that, it would instinctually be a, a pun, like a Hebrew pun. They would call him King Ahasuerus, which meant King Headache. And anytime they tell like King Ahasuerus there, he wouldn't get it. They got the inside joke of King Headache. Now, why did they call him King Headache? Famously known for throwing good parties. I'll talk about that in a minute. Drunk all the time, so headache from a hangover maybe, or probably more so. He was a headache to the Hebrews. We're not sure anyway. Uh, how do we know all this information about Ahasuerus? 
Uh, well, there's this very well historian named uh, Herodotus. He was a Greek historian. He was called the father of history. Uh, he loved old King Headache quite a bit, and that's why we have so much information about him. Uh, at this time of his reign, he was about his mid-30s. He reigned between 486 and 565 B.C., uh, what was rule like under this Persian, under the Persian Empire? It actually wasn't that bad. Uh, rule under the Persian Empire was, wasn't too bad, unlike the Assyrians or the Babylonians. The Assyrians, man, they were, they were some uh, bad mamma jammas. Like if they took you over, uh, they'd kill most of the people in front of everyone, or they would skin them alive or do some kind of torturous things to them, or they would even go dig up uh, their dead ancestors' bones and then grind them to powder in front of the people, which was a big deal back then, and throw them into the air and just let them go everywhere. I mean, that's some, that's some bad stuff. But the Persians, they operated more like a mob. Basically meaning if like everyone gets to stay in their position, you can be a governor, you can be a whatever, you're the sheriff this town, that's fine. You got to pay your taxes, you got to pay your dues, and you got to pay your homage to us. As long as you do that and do what you want to do, hey, life will be good here. I mean, very mob-like situation. And so that's why there were so many providences there because everybody wanted the Persian protection. If someone were to come warring against you and you've been paying your dues, paying your taxes, and paying your homage, well, then they'd be like, hey, we got you covered in a mob-like fa fashion. We'll go break their legs for you, no big deal. Just keep paying your dues. And so that's the way the Persian Empire happened. And so this made King Ahasuerus the most powerful, somewhat feared, because if you got out of line, he didn't mess around, and wealthy king of the time, of the known world at that time. So important to know this. Like, he was the guy. Everyone knew about him. Go back to verse 1. It says that he reigned from India to Ethiopia. So I want you to think about that. If you were to look at a map and you think about Africa, there's Sudan and all that right through here. He reigned from there all the way over to India. That is a massive land mass that he reigned through. He, lots, of, lots of ground. He's known as the most powerful guy at the person. His king spanned multiple nations and people. There were different races, different ethnicities, different languages, different religious convictions. Side note, what was the religion of that kind of land there? It was just a lot of um, paganism, uh, a lot of territorial gods, like every territory, every town, every providence had its own little god. But when it came to Ahasuerus, uh, he wanted to be the God. And so he was looked at because of his power, because of his wealth, because of all that. He was looked at as a God. Now, cultural practices there, it was a lot of polygamy. Uh, he had multiple wives and women were very mistreated back then. And so he would have uh, harems of women. And so at any time, any of his evil, wicked desires could be uh, could happen there because he had uh, all these women. I mean, he would make like Jeffrey Epstein look like a Boy Scout kind of deal. It was just bad. Uh, so not, not, he wasn't, he didn't treat people well. I mean, it's just, it's just bad. Um, now think about the land that he ruled. He ruled Egypt, Libya, Israel, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Pakistan. When have those countries ever not been warring against one another? During his reign though, they weren't. It was there, there was like this harmony. It's like it's never happened before, but under his reign, there was harmony. He kept it, he kept it ruled. Verse 2, still with me? Making sense? Like, I know there's a lot of background, but it's, it's, it's going to pay off, I promise. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. So the Persian Empire was so big and so vast, he had four different capitals, and this was one of his preferred places. 
It's set high above Susa, and so like when you would go to Susa, everyone would see this big, opulent, beautiful uh, house of his. I mean, it was just like this castle mansion type things. Uh, It would be in modern-day Iran, Iraq, close to that border there to kind of give you where it was at. Um, It's interesting. It's in that area. The thought of that day was, like I said earlier, that every uh, place had its own god, and uh, the God only had jurisdiction in that place. And so like we'd say in Susa, there's kind of the God there. They have jurisdiction there. Uh, and the question that we have to ask ourselves is Yahweh of the Old Testament, does he have jurisdiction there or does he only operate in Jerusalem? Well, we're going to find out. Verse 3, more about this king. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and uh, the nobles and governors of the province were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. All right, set the scene. This king has an unbelievable amount of wealth, unfathomable amount of wealth. and power, he can do anything. You would think he would take care of orphan children and widows, and he would take care of the hunger issues going on. He would make things fair around there. He would call the movie industry and get them to stop making the Fast and the Furious movies. Like, he would do some really good work in the land. But he doesn't. You know what he does with all this wealth and power? He throws a 180-day party. That's six months party. That is one-year party. Now, why does he throw a party? Is it because he's a lush? Like, what's going on here? Well, the reason is that mob-like mentality. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with the rulers and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to wine them and dine them. That way, they like this. I'll give them the women they want. I'll give them uh, the treasures they want. I'll let them see my wealth. And if they do, well, I'll, I'll give them a little bit of that. I'll keep them in line by, by, by giving them a bunch of my stuff. Basically, it's your taxpayer's dollars at work is what he's doing there. Now, you're hearing about how not a good guy this is, and there's more. But at this point, it's easy for us to stand back and like, man, Ahasuerus, he's a, he's a terrible guy. If I had that kind of money, you know what I would do? Listen, let's be honest with one another. You played the Mega Millions this summer. It was $1.3 billion. You know you did. And in your mind, what were you thinking? I'm going to take care of orphans and widows and all that. No, you weren't. No, you weren't. You're like, I'm going to get me a plane. I'm going to get me five houses. I'm going to do all whatever. And so... Yeah, our hearts are not much different at times. Maybe he's doing things externally that we do internally. But anywho, he throws this party for six months long, which tells us, I mean, the government is running pretty smooth when all the government officials can take six months off to get hammered. So it's like, yeah, it must be, it must be running really well. And could you imagine the planning for this party? They, uh, historians think maybe over 10,000 people were at it. Could you imagine the cleanup after this party? We have some friends come over for a few hours, and the house is wrecked. Got pita bread everywhere and drinks everywhere. It's like, it's a mess, am I right? (laughs) Anyway, keep going. Verse (laughs) 5. Sounded personal. (laughs) And when these days completed, so so the 180 days, six months is over, the king gave for all the people present in in, uh, Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And so that party's over. Now... Let's invite the commoners over. The average Joe and Jane, we're going to have them come over. Why is he doing this? Because he, he's a man for the people, because he loves them. He wants to share the wealth with them. Go back to verse 4, we find out. 
while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp. Like, he's showing off who he is. He wants more adoration and more worship for them. He's pompous. He's showing his glory. And glory is a gross word when it's used wrongly. Glory is one of those worship words that describes to God and God alone. Am I right? And so, but this guy, he's like, he is the, he is the glorious one there. He is the one to be worshipped. He is the one high and exalted. He is the one on the throne. Does it feel like we need to get a shower after this first five verses? Wait, it gets worse. Now we sit back and we think, man, okay, this book is odd because it's not starting out with anything about God. It's not starting out with anything about his people. It's starting out in great detail about this evil king. Verse 6. There were white cotton curtains, so here's more details, violet hanging fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold. Did you hear that? Couches of gold. That just sounds uncomfortable. Silver on the mosaic pavements of uh, porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. I mean, think about these average people. They're coming up into this temple. They're coming up to this, this palace and they're seeing all this beauty. And one of the things that would probably blow their minds was the color purple. Like back in that day, purple was like an odd, like it was so expensive and so rare to get the color purple. And yet they go in there and they just got purple hanging around everywhere. They were like, that's a new, could you imagine a new color? Like that had to be huge for them. And they're not even that, but they're like walking around on precious stone. These are poor people of the earth, people walking on, I mean, like this, this guy's you know, palace would make like the Kardashians look like tent campers or something. It's just crazy. <laughs> Verse 7, it goes on. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And so you have to picture all these people coming in, not being handed like red solo cups for beer pong. They're getting these gold, you know, nice chalices with like, mine's got diamonds, mine's got rubies, mine's solid, like whatever it is. And then they're getting the royal wine. I mean, it's not Trader Joe three buck chuck. It's like, the, it's, it ain't coming out of a box, people. It is like the best of the best. I mean, it's the top shelf stuff. He's giving them the best wine. And then he makes a rule about how to drink. He says this, which is a little bit of a control freak. He says, and drinking was according to this edict. And edict is this uh, irreversible law, basically. There is no compulsion. What's that mean? For the king had given order to all of the staff of his palace to do, to do as each man desires. Usually in these scenarios, you'd go in there, you take your cup, you get a little of that royal wine, and you just sip, sip, and chill. Because you know what? You don't want to get in there and lose your mind, get mouthy or something like that, and then you end up losing your head because you made the king mad or somebody mad, right? But like, he's like, no, 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 everything's like, no holes bar, everything's going to be cool. He's basically saying, open bar, everybody, it's all good. And so he's just saying, hey, you can, you can get drunk as long as you want to. Now, think about this. He has thrown six, uh, six months worth of party, and then another week. Some of you hear six months worth of party, like, yeah, that's no big deal. I did four years worth of party. It's called college. You know? <laughs> well, you're getting it paid off now. It's anyway. <laughs> rusty. Man, I'm rusty. Whew. Jeez. Anyway. Uh, so that, that's going on. So these part question we have, it's like, well, who, who's really there? Well, um, in that custom, men and women were to be together in those situations, but, but not all the women were there. The only women that were there 
would be a part of the harem. Now, imagine these are employed people of the palace or enslaved people of the palace, and there's potentially, we can guess from the text, uh, you know, 10,000 or so just drunk men. Like, what a scary, like, it's a scary situation, I would assume. Very scary situation. Verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So they're off somewhere else. There's a separation. That becomes important later on in the story. So hold on to these little tidbits. Uh, now we're introduced to King Vashti. Who is she? Who's King Vashti? She's originally married to King Ahasuerus' brother. And so he, King Ahasuerus, stole his brother's wife. That's never good. It gets worse. His king's brother's wife, now his wife, had a beautiful daughter as well. He stole her too and married her. He married his sister-in-law and his niece. Yuck. <laughs> like, wow. So this, I mean, now we all need a shower for that. This is gross. Um, so that, that is the beginning of the book of Esther. That is the background. That is the first nine verses. I guess we can pray and just go home. Am I right? No. We need to answer a question. First question is, it feels like something's missing. Well, you could say Esther, and we'll get to Esther in a little bit because she's missing from the first nine verses, but she's coming soon. But the other question is, I think we need to ask is, where, where is God? God? God has not been meant, first nine verses, God is not mentioned at all. We have a king who's running amok. He's abusing people. He's abusing resources. Uh, and the story is just going to go from, from bad to worse anyway. So, so where is God? Now, many of you, you may not be very familiar with the book of Esther. You may say, well, God's eventually going to show up somewhere in the text. But I love spoiling movies. I'm going to spoil this for you as well. Is that God actively never shows up in the book of Esther. He doesn't. Never mentioned. Not once. Never speaks. There's no prophet showing up. There are no angels. There are no miracles. There's nothing overtly supernatural. There's no mention of Jerusalem, the temple worship or anything like that. No, no mention of priest, no mention of sacrifice, no mention of prayer, no mention of repentance, no quoting other books of the Bible because the Bible does quite often. There is nothing. It's like what Martin Luther said, this is a godless book. It's like there is no God activity here. Why is that? Is it a design by the writer inspired by the Holy Spirit? What is going on here? Remember earlier, I told you where the book of Esther fits in the Old Testament, right? I told you it fits at the end. Here's a thought. You ever notice in the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, God is so present actively. Like he, his felt presence, his seen presence, his heard presence is very active. Like he creates everything by speaking everything out. Like I said earlier, he has an intimate conversation. He's there with Adam and Eve. Remember that? Like, and, and then sin comes and like separation of the world and all that kind of stuff. But yet he still stays intimate with his people. He, he still goes and talks to Abraham and he, he walks with him. He says he was a friend of his. And then you see him talking with Moses. It got to the point where he would talk to Moses a whole lot. And the people were so afraid of God's voice. Like, hey, Moses, uh, you go talk to him. We don't want to hear him kind of deal. I mean, like God was present. And then you think about the book of Exodus and like God, it's like so present in the book of Exodus, the pillar of fire and the smoke and all that. But when you start to notice God's people get more estranged, God's people go after more false gods and idolatry and kind of lose their love for, for God, God gets quiet. You ever notice that? As you keep reading the Old Testament, his activity gets quieter, more silent. It recedes a little bit. 
It even says this about him in Isaiah 8. Uh, Isaiah writes, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face. And you see God say, I have hidden my face over and over in the Old Testament from the house of Jacob. He hides his face. As the Old Testament goes on, it looks like God's presence, his activity, proceeds, recedes. But then you get to the New Testament, what happens? Boom, God's activity is like just on spotlight right there. You see the coming of Christ. You see the miracles. You see like God is very active. You see this miracle of the birth of the church, and you see miracles and supernatural. You all that. Then time, time goes on. We read a little bit of church history. There's maybe some miracles, but that, that, that God-felt activity. Not saying he's not present, but that God-felt activity goes down, down, down. And it feels like the time of Esther was one of the lowest points in the Old Testament of God's activity. And I would say it probably feels like God's activity feels like it's, it's lowest right now. So there are some similarities with us and Esther. Not saying God's not there because God is present with us, Holy Spirit resides in us. I'm talking about the felt activity of God. I mean, we live in a time where the wealthy, the wicked, the oppressors reign, and we're all just stuck here working to grind it out and pay the bills. Where's God in all that? Honestly, I bet most of us here at times, we feel like God is not present in our life. We can't feel his activity. He becomes even harder and harder to feel or to sense or to see his activity. Most of us here have probably never seen a miracle, right? Most of us have probably never heard the audible voice of God. We may have felt his presence inside, but we never heard God thunder from above. We probably have never heard that. Most of us have never never probably received a vision or seen an angel as well. I mean, there's a reality that all of us here have prayed for things that just have not happened. We just feel like it just God is silent. It's like he's hidden his face. We prayed for healing, and yet the cancer or the illness is still there, or the, the person dies. Or we prayed for relief from suffering, and yet it just feels like it's only intensified. Or we've uh, been praying for reconciliation with this other person, and yet now there just feels like more space. And we've been praying for peace, and yet now we feel like there's just more hostility, and it makes us wonder, I would bet, much like the people of Esther's time, God, where are you? Have you hidden your face from me? What are you doing? Do you not care about us? And I think that's an honest feeling. It's honest. We look at, we look at the world, word and we look at the world in these times of Esther and ours. It just feels like the wicked win and God is not there. But let me give you just a little bit about God and we're going to tease this out. Let me give you a sneak peek into like the reality The book of Esther is a book about God's providence. It's about God working behind the scene. Now, when you use words like sovereignty and providence, sometimes we get a little confused. I've got a definition of providence. It goes like this. God's superintending activity over human action and human history bringing creation to his divinely determined goal. Okay, Ty, what does that mean? How does that work? Think of it like this. Imagine if, and you have to imagine, because God is spirit and God is invisible, got it? You have to imagine. Imagine God has two hands. He has a visible hand and an invisible hand, okay? His visible hand are the things we read about in the Bible of him doing these things. It's very visible to everyone. It's been recorded down. Or his visible hand is where he's done things in your life, and you're just like that, like God spoke, a miracle happened, something like that. I can see God's visible hand, his visible, visible activity in my life. That is his visible hand. I've seen it a couple times. I've seen a miracle once, twice-ish. Uh, I've seen some things like that, like, man, God just showed up right now. 
Some of you have, some of you have it, but that's his visible hand. But then he also has his invisible hand. That's his providence. And see, the, the problem that some people have is that God doesn't always work through the visible hand. He's not always doing miracles. Like I said, some of us not have seen miracles or, or supernatural or heard his voice or anything like that. Why? Because God is using his invisible hand. He's, he's, he's always at work. This is where God is work. Is at work. He is good. He is active. He's doing things, but he's doing things at times in very subtle ways that we either do not acknowledge, notice, or just don't know about. There is a hidden will of God, and he's working in the background of everything. I mean, think about some of the things he's done that we just take for granted. He determined when you would be born. He determined where you would be born. If you don't believe me, check out the book of Acts, Acts 17. He's determined who's going to come into your life, who's not going to be in your life. He's determined like your, your skill set, your experiences, your, your spiritual gifts, your talents, all that kind of stuff. And what God has already been doing in our lives, he's already working in the background for our good and for his glory. I mean, think about it. Even back at the beginning of the book of Genesis, we see God created everything and everyone. Providence is telling us that he has not left everything and everyone. He is still actively involved. He is still ruling and caring for and sustaining his creation. This is the point of providence, that God is bigger than history, that God is bigger than my situation, that God is bigger than creation. He's bigger than everything, and he is still actively involved. And he will bend everything, bend everything to his will for his glory, because that is the best thing for humanity. Do you believe that? One person. Cool. (laughs) Well, don't take my word for it. Take the book of Romans, Romans 8, 28. And we know that those who love God, what's the next two words? Do you know what all things means? Good things? Bad things? God is active things? where God's felt activity is not their things. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That is what we're going to see throughout the book of Esther. You, when you read the book of Esther, when you study the book of Esther, when you listen to the book of Esther, you've just got to be so in tune to like, this is what God is doing. It is a book of providence. You're going to see it in full force in this book. Earlier, I mentioned that I like um, Rembrandt's paintings. Let me, let me show you one more. It's really cool. This one is called The Night Watch, one of his most famous painting. It hangs in a museum in Amsterdam, and the thing is huge. It is 13 feet by 16 feet. Now, I want you to, as you look at the painting, don't look at me, look at the painting. As you, I want you to uh, imagine a scenario happens as you're looking at this painting, that you're walking up into this Amsterdam uh, museum, and you see Two fellows standing there observing it. One is a young man. He's an art student. And the other is an old art professor. And the art professor looks at the young man and says, hey, can you tell me where Rembrandt signed this? The young art student, he just kind of looks all over it, looks in the corners, because, you know, that's where people usually sign their paintings. Man, I, I don't see it. Oh, but I know that Rembrandt, he's notorious for putting his face on stuff. And the art professor like, well, very, very well, very well. Well, go find his face. He looks all over it. It's like, Professor, I don't, I don't see his face anywhere. Professor, wise smile. He said, keep looking at the painting. He said, you see the artistic style? He said, you see every brush stroke? He's like, 
every one of those scream Rembrandt. That's Esther, and that is our life. Sometimes it's not obvious, like a face or a signature, but it is the brushstrokes of our lives that the master artist, God himself, is painting and is a part of our lives. Do not lose hope when it feels like God is not present or active. He is right there. Listen, the book of Esther is going to be, I think, a good book for us in such a time as this. Uh, It is going to help us remain hopeful when it feels like all is lost, when it feels like God is absent. And by the way, I just want you to know the the writing style of the book of Esther, it's a parody almost. It's a true story, but it's a parody. It's, it's, It's pumping the king up on purpose. You know why? Here's why I think. This evil king is pointing to the perfect king. He's the antithesis of the king of all kings. You know, back in our Ahasuerus time, he was called the king of kings. It's just a parody. It's just a comedy. He's a chump. You know why? I'll tell you why. Ahasuerus, he came from his father, Darius. Jesus, he came from his father, God. Ahasuerus ruled over nations as a king. Jesus will rule over every nation as king of kings. Ahasuerus never experienced poverty, only riches, because he was a trust fund baby. Darius did all the warring for him. Jesus left his riches and experienced poverty for us. Ahasuerus abused people with his power. Jesus, he uses his power to save us. Ahasuerus killed the enemies with his army. Jesus loves and saves his enemies. Ahasuerus sits on a temporary throne. Jesus sits on an eternal throne. Ahasuerus died and is dead, and no one worships him anymore. Jesus died, came back to life, and billions worship him. God is present. This story is going to show us over and over his presence, even when it feels like he is not currently active in our lives. I want to pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll go to the Lord's table. We'll do our style of feasting at the Lord's table that's different from theirs. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for just your uh, amazing love, grace, and mercy, and God, there are some things in our life where it just feels like you're so present, so evident. We can feel you. We can sense you. We can hear you through your word. We, we can watch your activity around the world. And yet, there, God, there are so, so many times, too, it feels like you're absent. And so we, we almost sound like Isaiah or sound like the psalmist, like, God, have you hidden your face from us? And yet, as we read your word, as we know the end of the story where we're indwelled by your spirit and that you are all present with us and Emmanuel is God with us, we know that, God, may we be honest. It's just hard sometimes. I know there are many people here today that just feel like that you have abandoned them, that you have left them. And God, I pray that you use your word, your spirit, whatever it may be. Let them be reminded that you are the God with us, that you left heaven and came to earth to be with us, that you dwell in us and among us. May we take comfort in that today. And God, as you're doing your work, as you're using your visible hand and it feels mostly your invisible hand, may it be for our joy, may it be for the good of the world around us, and Jesus, everything you're doing in our life, may it be for your glory and your glory alone. We pray in Christ's name, amen.